1 Samuel 7. So find 1 Samuel 7 in your Bible and then join me in standing. And let's read it together. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and redirect your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace. We thank you for being able to witness uh, this one that has come professing faith in Christ and following in believer's baptism. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of 
Also, being able to remember your sacrifice as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord, we also thank you that uh, you are great and mighty and that you are sovereign God of all. That uh, we never have to be concerned about what happens in history because you are carrying out your perfect plan, your salvation plan. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we have come to know you, we have come to know the gospel, and uh, we have, uh, you have enabled us to believe in Christ and to have eternal life through faith in him. And so, Lord, we thank you for all these things, and we worship you this morning. We want to express our love to you, that uh, we love you with all our hearts, And, Lord, help us to serve you with all our hearts in demonstration of that. And, Lord, may you uh, just uh, work in our midst this morning. May your word be clear and may your word be powerful in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 1999 at a missions conference in Houston, Texas, A missionary to Africa had brought some African pastors to the conference in the United States. And during their free time, they wanted to go shopping, but he was afraid they might get lost on the streets of Houston. So he gave them his cell phone number for just such a situation. Well, sure enough, about an hour later, the phone rang. And one of the African pastors announced, we're lost. The missionary said, well, go to the street corner and tell me the names of the two streets at the corner and come back and tell me where you are and I'll come and get you. He waited just a few minutes and then the African pastor announced, we're at the corner of walk and don't walk. What about you? Have you ever been at the corner of walk and don't walk? Have you ever been at the crossroad of your life and couldn't decide which way you really wanted to go? Maybe you felt pulled in one direction, God's way, but at the same time there was a pull in the other direction. Reminds me of the question that the prophet Elijah asked in 1 Kings 18.21. As he was facing the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he asked the people of Israel, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Now, the Bible tells us the people of Israel did not answer Elijah, but there comes a time when you have to decide which way you're going to go. That's exactly where we find God's people in 1 Samuel 7. And what we find here is that the people made the right decision, and they went the right direction, and this became a turning point in their history. Some have said that 1 Samuel 7 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. God's people are in need of revival. The ark of God 
had returned to Israel, but Israel had not returned to God. It was time for Samuel to come back on the scene and call them to repentance and revival. And just as a reminder of what has already taken place, in chapter 4, the Philistines, the primary enemy of God's people during this time, have secured a great military victory, and they have captured the ark of God. And while the people have seen this as a great tragedy, God uses this to bring about his own determination to remove the high priest Eli and his two wicked sons. All three of them die on the same day, and the ark of God is taken by the Philistines. However, to the horror of the Philistines, they discover the hard way that the ark is not really something they want. Not only does the ark destroy their god, Dagon, but it brings tumors and death to their cities. So they pass the ark back and forth like a hot potato, and finally they return it to Israel with offerings of gold. In chapter 7, verse 1, we read, And then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. The ark is now back in Israel. It had originally been returned to a place called Beth Shemesh, but the people there had incurred the wrath of God for treating it disrespectfully. But now it's in Kiriath-Jerim, and as we will see in this passage, it remains there for 20 years. But during this 20-year period, something begins to stir in the hearts of God's people. And in this passage, we find a path back to God and a restoration of his incredible blessings. Now, I'm calling this from Ichabod to Ebenezer because whereas the glory had departed from Israel, now we see it will return. And here we see true revival and restoration. In fact, here we see a reformation that will carry into the glory days of David. And Solomon. Now, I don't do this often, but this morning we're going to have an eight point outline. We find eight key elements in this passage, so we're going to be here till three o'clock. But these are things that really delineate this change of course in Israel. The first thing we see here is the repining. Look with me at verse 2. And it came about from the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel, notice, lamented after the Lord. Here we're told that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for two full decades before Samuel called the assembly at Mizpah. What we need to also understand is that 
the ark will remain at Kiriath-Jerim for a hundred years until David finally moves it to Jerusalem. But notice something is something good is beginning to happen in the hearts of God's people. They are beginning to lament after God. We are beginning to see some signs of spiritual vitality here. The word for lament there literally means to weep and wail. It means to repine. It's a a word that expresses brokenness and determination. They are tired of the oppression they're under, and they're finally ready to do something about it. This is the blessing of pain. Suffering has a way of getting us out of our comfort zone and making us ready for change. You know, I've done my share of marriage counseling uh, in my years as a pastor, and one thing that is true about this type of counseling is the fact that couples often have to come to a point of getting to the end of their rope before they seek help and before they're actually ready to change and do something about their marriage problems. This is why this kind of counseling can be challenging because many times by the time the couple seeks counsel, they're already in a desperate situation. But the very first step to dealing with these issues is you have to make a determination to change. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes to fix the problems. This is also the first step to spiritual revival and restoration as well. And this is where the people are here in verse 2. They are lamenting after God. They are repining after His glory and blessing. This is a good first step. But secondly, we see the return Look with me at verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. This is the first time now we've seen Samuel since chapter 4, verse 1. We had almost... Three Samuel-less chapters as the Ark of the Covenant took center stage. But now Samuel returns front and center. This is actually the beginning of his ministry here. And think about it. Twenty years of his life has passed without any information about him. As with many of God's chosen leaders There is a long period of anonymity before he comes onto the scene and becomes prominent. But I can assure you he has not been idle. We saw in our introduction of this book that he has been busy establishing schools of the prophets. And even though we see where he is essentially preaching here in verse 3, It is likely that this is a way in which the author condenses his ministry. 
He very well may have been preaching in various places leading up to this moment. But he's telling the people that if they want to return to God, everything must begin in their hearts. They have to return to God with their whole heart. Half-hearted repentance is never enough. They needed to return to the Lord with all their hearts. And this is going to be evidenced by their removing of all their idols and returning to the Lord alone. This is the second step in genuine revival. There has to be a genuine repentance that is evidenced by a true turning away from sin. In fact, what God requires is that we make a break from everything that is feeding our sin and rebellion against God. It takes more than just desire. There also has to be action. Under the sin and compromise of the previous leadership, they had fallen into idolatry. So they needed to return to a single devotion to Yahweh. The people of Israel had added a number of pagan aspects to their worship practices. They had not totally abandoned the law of Moses or the worship of Yahweh in the temple, but they had borrowed a number of pagan practices from the Canaanites and added them to their worship. And by the way, this is the very same danger that many have succumbed to in the evangelical church today. While we claim that we have remained faithful to the gospel, we have in fact added a number of methodologies that center on worldly practices and entertainments. And we have become enamored with secular concepts of success instead of sticking with the worship that is prescribed in God's word. But as John MacArthur puts it, the Lord will not permit his people to create their own syncretistic religion, selecting at a whim this idea of what practice from the world's abundance of false gods we want to add to our so-called worship. He calls here the people to serve Yahweh alone. And so they must abandon their idolatry and serve the one true God alone. And notice their defeat and oppression by the Philistines had been a result of their idolatry. But the promise of God's prophet was if they truly repented and turned to God alone, he would deliver them then from their enemies. Well, the good news is that their repentance was indeed genuine. So thirdly, we see the removal. Look with me at verse 4. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. They did what Samuel admonished them to do. They got rid of their false gods. And of course, it's always good to grieve over sin. Genuine repentance often begins with such sorrow, but it's not enough just to weep. You also have to take action. Genuine repentance never stops with remorse. 
it also includes removal. Apparently, Samuel's preaching was meant to counter any kind of superficial response. He made it clear that getting back to God would require the removal of all their false gods. As Dale Davis puts it, genuine repentance will always move beyond wet eyes and moved feelings and stirred emotions. It will cast down idols and cling to the only true God. He says true repentance will meet Yahweh's demand for exclusive allegiance with whatever it takes to obey it. This is just as important today as it was for the people of that day. And by the way, Samuel is calling Israel here to a very difficult repentance. They are to put away both Baal and Ashtaroth. In other words, both the male and the female gods that were the predominant fertility deities. Now, what does this mean? Well, Canaanite religions exerted a powerful appeal to sexual rights that were part of its worship. Temple prostitution was a key aspect of Canaanite religion. Sexual immorality was very much a part of this pagan worship, and sexual sin is often difficult to repent of. As Dale Davis writes, it is no easy task to peel Israelites out of the grip of a cult that both asked for and approved of the offering of their bodies in a sexual way as a living sacrifice to Baal and Ashtaroth. And not only were these Canaanite gods fertility gods, but they were also gods who supposedly held authority over crops and military victories. So if you wanted your crops to grow or you wanted to be victorious in battle, you'd better worship these gods. And by the way, I wonder how the seeker church of that day and time would have sold this practice. Don't you know they probably would have said something like, you know, we need to stay up with the times. We need to be relevant in our world. We need to be like the world so we can win these pagans. So what we need to do is we need to get involved with these practices so they'll know how cool we are. That's not what Samuel said. He said, get rid of these pagan gods. Let go of these sinful practices and return to the one true God. Let go of this sexual immorality because God is holy and he expects us to be holy as well. And there's another, by the way, here. Only Yahweh lays this either or, all or nothing demand upon his people. The other gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East were not nearly so picky. A pagan devotee was welcome to embrace multiple gods and goddesses simultaneously, and there was no problem. Only Israel's God was the jealous God 
that would not allow any divided hearts. The concept of the jealous God means that he loves his people too much to allow them to cuddle up to any rival. This is especially true if that false religion leads us to cuddle up with a literal prostitute. But the people of Israel in Samuel's day did the right thing. They repented of their sinful practices. They put away their false gods. And this leads us to the revival. Look with me at verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Mizpah was about eight miles southwest of Bethel. And it was here that Samuel called the people together for a time of revival. This was the public expression of their repentance. A public display like this is very appropriate, but only if the repentance is genuine. This is what we might call a revival meeting. They had a tent meeting in Mizpah, and they all repented and turned back to the Lord. And by the way, there is no other way back to God than through genuine repentance. Those who stray from fellowship with him must repent of sin and rebellion against him. Genuine repentance is the only way to be restored to God. And notice that the primary purpose for this gathering was so that Samuel could pray to the Lord on their behalf. For some reason, his intercessory prayer was more effective if they were all gathered together in one place. And notice that the people did three things here. They poured out water to the Lord, they fasted, and they confessed their sins. Now, no one really knows what the pouring out of water was all about, but it was clearly an expression of their repentance. Some have suggested that it was the symbolic representation of the temporal and spiritual distress that they were experiencing. Lamentations 2.19 says, Arise, cry aloud in the night, at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. So it may have been that this was the idea of expressing their total dependence in God in a time of great distress. Another possibility is that it was part of their fasting. The fast may have even included water, and the pouring out of the water onto the ground may have been the idea of not being able to retrieve it. Or it may have been symbolic of their corporate cleansing from sin and guilt. So we're not real clear about this act and what it means, but one thing is clear. It was a public demonstration of their repentance. Then we're told they fasted. Fasting, as you know, is often associated in Scripture with fervent 
prayer. This tells us they meant business. Their willingness to fast demonstrated their seriousness in which they cried out to the Lord. The third thing they did was to confess their sin. They acknowledged we have sinned against the Lord. They acknowledged their wrongdoing and admitted their guilt. And, of course, biblical confession is not just an admission of wrong. It is an agreement with God's assessment. It is agreeing with God that our sin is detestable. But all these acts were important. This was a public turning back to God and lining themselves up with his will. And notice what it says about Samuel's role here. It says, Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel is considered the last of the judges, but he was not like all the other judges. For one thing, he judged all of Israel, not just one or two tribes. But really, his primary role was that of prophet. In Acts 13.20, Paul said, And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Note that Paul called Samuel a prophet, not a judge. We also know he was a priest. But as a prophet, he received direct revelation from God for the people. And later, we're going to see him in the role of counselor to the first king of Israel. Well, we better move on. In verses 7 through 11, we see the reversal. The reversal. In verse 7, we're told that the Philistines heard about this revival at Mizpah. But from their perspective, it was not revival, but revolt. Mizpah literally means the lookout. So this was a very public gathering. And because of this, the lords of the Philistines saw this as a threat, so they marshaled their troops and they came against Israel, and this caused great fear among the Israelites. But notice that this time they do not trust in the Ark of the Covenant to save them. They're now trusting in God himself. Look at verse 8. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Earlier they were not trusting the Lord for anything. Now they're saying, Don't stop praying for us. This is in stark contrast to chapter 4. In fact, chapters 4 and 7 are intended to stand beside one another as a formal parallel contrast. In chapter 4, we see Israel struck down. In chapter 7, we see the Philistines struck down. In chapter 4, we see manipulation as the people say, let the ark save us. Here in chapter 7, we see repentance as the people say, let the Lord save us. In chapter 4, the result is Ichabod, the glory has departed. In chapter 7, the result is Ebenezer. But the primary point is that here in chapter 7, the people are no longer now dabbling in religious magic 
but biblical faith. Their only weapon here is prayer, and their only hope is Yahweh. And yet, this is enough. As someone once said, desperation is never in trouble when it rests on omnipotence. In verse 10, we're told that God blasted the Philistines with his thunder, and they were so confused they were routed before the enemies of Israel. And, of course, there's great application here for us as well. We also find ourselves in times of distress, and we have to decide where we're going to turn for help. We can try to find help in human resources, or we can turn to the true and living God. Davis writes, sometimes the Father may box us in, place us in a situation in which one by one all our secondary helps and supports are taken from us in order that defenseless we may lean on His mercy. There are times that we need to be driven to desperate prayer. And even as the, the church as a whole is in need of these situations at times. Davis says the church can, can often become blind to her true state. At least in the West, the church is used to developing new strategies, originating effective gimmicks, or promoting proven programs that she can dupe herself into thinking that she lives by her own evangelical cleverness. Yet there is a form of spiritual warfare that is not really touched by more and better administration or by brighter and more creative ideas. But we may not see this except in those times when God takes our props away and forces us to rely on his naked hand for support. John MacArthur writes, God's people still face many foes today, whether from the open hostility of the world or from spiritual attacks from Satan. But the principle still applies. The Lord will defend and protect his people. And he can never lose. The question is, where are we going to turn? Where are we going to turn? As Paul wrote in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? The Philistines were a far superior army from a human perspective. They had iron weapons and chariots, while the armies of Israel had slings and bows at best. But this powerful foe could not stand against the thundering voice of God Most High. The Israelites, of course, were called to participate in the battle, but the victory was given to them by God Himself. There was a great reversal of power because of the one true God. This is a lesson we still need to learn today. I could camp here for a long time, but we must move on. A sixth aspect of this great transformation is what I'm calling the remembrance 
the remembrance. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shem and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now I could preach an entire sermon just on this one verse, but I won't have time to do that this morning. Samuel obviously wanted to make sure the people remembered this great victory, so he took a stone of some kind and he set it up as a monument. This is very similar to what Joshua did as he took a a pile of stones from the Jordan River and piled them up as a memorial to the Lord. Here, Samuel named his monument Ebenezer, which literally means stone of help. So anytime you hear the phrase, now I raise mine Ebenezer, that's what this is talking about. This was a monument to God's power and faithfulness. And Samuel explained the meaning of this monument. He said, when he set it up, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now, this phrase does not point only to the past. It points to the past and the present and the future as well. It points back to God's faithful protection of his people against unbelievable odds such as the Egyptians. It points to their preservation in the wilderness and their conquest of the land of promise. But it also implies that if God provided in such a mighty way in the past, he can also be counted on in the present and in the future. The phrase, up to this point, implies that God will continue to be faithful to his people as they move into the future. You can always count on God. Now, someone might say, but previous to this, They had been defeated and God's ark was captured. Yes, but that was God's will. This was all a part of God's plan for his people. He could have easily prevented that, but he allowed it to bring his people to this place of repentance and reformation. When God's people were right and the time was right, all he had to do was to thunder his mighty voice and the Philistines would be utterly defeated. In other words, what we have to learn is that sometimes God's help comes in the form of allowing us to suffer defeat in order to bring us to a place of repentance and brokenness and total dependence on him. But he always brings his people to the point of victory in the end. And sometimes we need to set up a monument to remind ourselves of that. It doesn't have to be a literal stone, but something that will remind us of his absolute faithfulness. And down through the history of the church... We have seen this sort of thing. I think of the Reformation Wall in Geneva as an example of this. The truth of the matter is, we tend to forget what God does, and we sometimes need to be reminded of that. So it's good to raise an Ebenezer in some way. It's good to have some sort of spiritual marker to remind us 
of his faithfulness. As John MacArthur puts it, it is important to be reminded frequently of all God has done on behalf of his people, lest we forget and begin to distrust his faithfulness. Well, in verses 13 and 14, we see the results. Look at verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. The power and dominance of the Philistines was severely diminished. Now, we're going to see them again during the reign of Saul. But they're no longer the oppressive power they had once been. And the victory that God gave to his people here not only subdued them, but it also allowed Israel to recapture the cities that the Philistines had taken. And not only that, they were also able to take care of the Amorites as well. This is simply a reminder that when God gives victory, it often goes beyond our expectations. But there's one last thing that we need to see here, and that is the recap. In verses 15 to 17, we have a recap of Samuel's life and ministry. This doesn't mean that we have seen the last of Samuel in this book, but the author pauses here to give a summary of his impact on God's people. And there are some important lessons for us here. Look at verse 15. Now, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Now, what's the significance of this recap? It is the importance of consistent ministry over a long period of time. The circuit that Samuel went on is one that hits all the major cities in Benjamite territory. Three times we're told here that Samuel judged Israel. But we should not see this as merely some sort of administrative justice. We probably today would call this a preaching circuit. His judging of Israel was more in line with his role as God's prophet. And although this role undoubtedly included the proclamation of new revelation from God, for the most part, this was the proclamation of what God had already given the Old Testament scriptures. But the point here is that unlike the miraculous victory over the Philistines, this was nothing spectacular. It was instead the steady year-after-year ministry of the Lord's prophets. So it is significant that we see God working both in a spectacular way, but also in a routine way. 
In fact, I would say that he usually works in the routine way. Davis writes, the circuit through Benjamin is never as glorious and glamorous as the revival at Mizpah, but it is the road for many, if not most of us. It's not usually the spectacular that makes the greatest difference in our lives spiritually. It's the week after week, month after month, year after year feeding on God's Word. It's the routine of spiritual growth. It's the constant discipline of service and worship. That's what counts the most. How about you this morning? Are you plugged in to God's program? Are you, as these people in Israel in that day, lamenting after the Lord? Are you broken over sin? Are you repentant in heart? Are you ready for God to do something new and special in your life? These people did the right thing. Will we do that as well? Well, let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you'd help us to understand the significance of this text. Lord, I pray that you would teach us by your Spirit how to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, help us to respond to you the way you'd want us to. Lord, I pray even as we observe the Lord's Supper together, Lord, that our hearts would be set on you and that perhaps for some who might respond at the end of our time to trust in Christ for salvation or to renew commitment and service to the Lord, that we would do exactly what you desire for us to do. Be with us now as we not only respond to your word, but as we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper together, that our hearts would be right before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.